Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello, and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with psychiatric nurse practitioner Joelle Bailey. After that, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network resource of the week, the Independence Center, a nonprofit that specializes in supporting and promoting civil rights for people with disabilities. On this week's Insight segment of the show, I'll be talking about how some service members and veterans need to have chaos in their lives. One thing about being a veteran, when we were in the military, we could put up with just about anything. Extreme boredom, high stress. We could stand out in the rain for no apparent reason, just because somebody said that's what we had to do. Our natural environment was chaos, and we performed extremely well under stress and in chaotic situations. Thinking back in my own military career, I was really in the zone when I was managing a chaotic and rapidly moving situation. In training, usually at the Joint Readiness Center or the National Training Center, I'd go for 24 to 36 hours with no sleep. Special operations folks did one better. Ranger school is two months of no sleep, no food, and constant chaos. And in combat, this is where it really gets you. Days of intense boredom the same day happening over and over again, and you find yourself wishing for something to happen. Against all of our better judgment, and not to say our own personal preservation instincts, we want someone to shoot at us. It's hard to believe, but it can be true. A fish wants to swim, a bird wants to fly, and many veterans find themselves at home in an intense, rapidly moving situation. If I'm not one foot ahead of disaster, then I don't feel alive, many veterans say. Dancing on the razor's edge is where we feel the most comfortable. We've all heard the stories of returning veterans finding themselves barreling down the highway at 90 miles an hour or jumping out of airplanes or going to a bar just to get into fights. It's adrenaline. It's misplaced anger. And it's a desire to create an environment where we know how to manage ourselves. Chaos. This is a challenge when it comes to what we think we want and what we actually do. If you ask me or many other veterans, what do you want to have when you leave the military? We'll say peace. We want a shot at the American dream. Just take care of ourselves and our family to be happy, to be at rest. That's what we say, but what we do is sometimes different. We can't find that we're able to relax in non-military life. We're on edge all the time. We throw sharp elbows and we disrupt the relationships and we piss people off. Why? Do we want to? Most of the time, not really. We're just operating in an environment that no longer exists. We're using old skills that used to work in one situation, but doesn't work in our current situation. We don't adapt. We're fixed in our old patterns of problem solving. 
by not adapting to the new non-military situation, we're creating chaos and opposition in our lives, which makes us uncomfortably comfortable. So in order to feel like we're in control, we can create problems where there weren't problems before. We perceive problems that don't exist. We're not doing this consciously or deliberately. Without awareness, without self-reflection, our chaos-creating ability is on wide display and in full force. And if we don't stop and reflect, if we don't use the space between stimulus and response that Viktor Frankl described, then the default setting is going to be Tasmanian devil. Anything that happens, chaos. Anything that isn't happening, chaos. We create chaos so that we can manage chaos. We create problems where no other problems exist in order to solve those problems. I'm not talking about all veterans, of course, but I see this often enough in the veterans I work with that it happens more often than we might want to think. Another challenging problem when it comes to chaos creation is that many veterans are carrying so much guilt from things that happened or didn't happen when they were in the military. This is as much moral injury as it is PTSD or anything else. Some veterans simply don't believe they deserve peace. They feel as though they're condemned and condemned people get a choice of their last meal and not much else. The problem with thinking that we don't deserve peace, don't deserve forgiveness, is that we don't seek it. We don't work to be comfortable with either of them. This is a belief that we have about ourselves as it relates to the world. As with many other beliefs, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and our lives are filled with chaos. I'm not immune to this either. When it comes to free time, I don't have much of it because I don't allow myself to. This isn't a good thing. My wife once said, when you retired from the army, I thought we were going to see more of you, not less of you. She was joking, but then again, she wasn't really. But sometimes I feel like I have an inability to say no to things. This has happened in cycles since I've left the military. I find myself bored, so I look for things to do, then very quickly find myself overwhelmed and overextended. So I pull back and find myself bored, so I start looking for things to do, and the chaos cycle begins again. As always, awareness is the first thing that's needed to counteract our urge to create chaos where none exists. Without the awareness that we engage in this cycle, we can't disrupt this cycle. We may never be comfortable not doing anything, but we don't have to always be comfortable in chaos either. Finding balance between calm and chaos is a way for veterans to find meaning in their post-military life. So I really appreciate being able to talk about some of these insights. Do you agree? Disagree? It'd be great to hear your thoughts. Share them with us by dropping an email to militarymind at FCCSprings.com. In today's interview segment, I have a conversation with Joelle Bailey, a psychiatric nurse practitioner with the Family Care Center. Joelle is a board-certified psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. As a Colorado native, she attended undergraduate school at Regis University in Denver and graduate school at the University of Colorado at the Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora. She's passionate about serving the community of Colorado Springs and strives to provide quality, compassionate, and evidence-based care. Let's get into my conversation with Joelle and come back afterwards to hear about this week's Homefront Military Network resource of the week. So you've been at the Family Care Center for a long time and you're a Colorado native. I'd like to hear about how you got involved in mental health and why you're passionate about serving the military affiliated population. So I got involved in mental health, probably the same reason a lot of people get involved in mental health. Um, and that's usually either having a family member or a personal experience that was profoundly impactful. And for me, um, I have a long family history of severe mental illness, inpatient hospitalizations, untreated mental illness. For myself, I have been in remission for a while, um, but um, 
once you have experienced any type of mental health crisis, I think it definitely shifts your perception on mental illness and the impact. As far as the military um, affiliated population, um, it is something that I've grown uh, more passionate about because they are especially vulnerable in a lot of ways. Um, One, because, you know, they sacrifice their whole life. They have, it's a full family sacrifice. So children, parents, um, the veteran themselves, uh, a lot of times they're PCS into an area where they have no family um, or friends. They have no social support system. And that's when I see a lot of um, mental health crisis is happening, either the lack of social support or, um, you know, actually trauma related to what they experience in the military. You're fine. I think that's something a lot of people don't realize is the people who are serving here aren't from here, right? They're separated from their family of origin. They don't have their support, um, spouses especially, right? They're they're taken away from their families, and, and that can be really challenging. It definitely can because a lot of times mental illness is triggered by extreme stress or prolonged stress. So something like that could be what causes a mental health crisis and especially when you're dealing with um, like younger veterans and young families if they have several children they don't have a support system so they're here by themselves Um, and then um, depending on what the veteran experiences they may come back and may not be able to deal with some of those emotions at least not very well I think that it, the military is as much a running away from something as it is running to something, right? So you said that that history that, that your family has. Uh, my father was in Vietnam, and, and we dealt with everything that he was going through. Um, and so a lot of times veterans and, and military spouses, it's the same thing, would come into the military having challenges of their own, and then may, it might get exacerbated by the military. I agree. Um, because a lot of the people that I talk to, especially, you know, young privates, they go into the military because they find it as an opportunity. So they might, you know, depending on what's going on at home, they might be running away from home because they find this as an opportunity. So they're already vulnerable to begin with. And they may have already experienced some trauma in whatever environment they're in. And then they go into the military and experience more trauma. The other thing that's interesting, uh, that I'll briefly say is that your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25. So essentially they're experiencing adult situations even at at young ages and that can be troublesome. No, I agree. I think um, the military understands that the recruiting 18-year-olds, right? Yes. Um, especially the Marine Corps uh, is a very young uh, force. Uh, I think the average age of the Marine Corps is like 19 or 20 years old. And so it is a very young force. And it can be good if you're trying to get to train people to walk in a straight line in basic training, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything imprints on a brain at that age. Definitely. Um, and especially if you... And a lot of times stress, and not a lot of people realize this, but if you're forced to do things that, you know, it's like you ignore your own instincts for a long period of time, that definitely can do damage over time. And I think, you know, it's a lot of adult situations for a young person, depending on, you know, what's going on. And some people will have great experiences with the military and other people will have uh, pretty traumatic experiences that impact them for the rest of their life. And there's the good stress too, right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's not just, you know, the, the drill sergeant yelling in your face or something like that. I mean, that, that can be something that can be overcoming those kind of stressful events well can build resilience. Yes. And how I usually describe it is, so you enjoy running, right? So you run um, maybe one time a week. And does that cause damage? No. Well, what if you ran every single day of the week? Would that cause damage? Maybe. Well, if you ran a marathon every single day, 
would that cause damage? Absolutely. That would be, you know, hip issues, knee knee issues, ankle injuries. The same thing goes for the brain. So the more stress that you put on the brain, the more damage. And when we're dealing with, you know, especially on in my realm, I'm dealing actually with um, brain injuries and people don't ever think of mental illness that way. But I always think of, you know, that's why people are doing medication because we're actually dealing with more brain injuries that were sustained over a long period of, you know, stressful. It could be just the stress of, you know, someone's deployed and there's a lot of things going on, or it could just be, you know, maybe they don't get along with people in their unit, or maybe there's, you know, issues with leadership or whatever is the reason. But the impact on the brain can be profound, and especially since their brain is vulnerable, um, you know, because it's still developing, that can cause lasting damage too. The military is an inherently stressful environment, necessarily so, right? Mm -hmm. It's a dangerous environment, even, you know, with whatever safety precautions. But then things happen in the military, which can over, you know, overcome that if someone is sexually assaulted, for example, or something like that, right? So you you have a baseline of high stress, but then traumatic events come and add more significant traumatic stress. It makes sense because I think at that time, most people are thinking in black and white situations where it's like, I'm going to go in and, you know, I'm going to do what I need to do, but they don't think about the, what could also happen. So it could be, you know, military sexual trauma, or it could be a situation that was a no-win situation that makes them really question their ethics or, you know, it even may change how they think about themselves. Like I did something, does that mean I'm bad? Or because when you're thinking about, you know, if I do things, can I be can I do something that I do not agree with and still be a good person? And I think that causes a lot of, um, a lot of you know trauma as well because people are essentially at war with their own mind even after they're out of the military. And it's not like they teach the psychological concept of learned helplessness in basic training, right? Or moral flexibility in in ethical decision making. No. I know I didn't get that in basic training. No, and it's really difficult to conceptualize even as a young person. That's. I mean, some people even late into adulthood don't even think about it that way. Um, But that's why I think there's a lot of reason. You know, I think that's why people do suffer so much sometimes is because of things that, you know, maybe they thought were questionable or there's things that they don't, you know, tell everyone because either it changes how they think about themselves or it makes them think um, or, you know, and it definitely changes how they think about the world and everyone around them. No, I, and I think those are, are some really important points, and 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 that's the psychology of it. Um, but beyond psychology, you're a medication provider rather mm-hmm. than a therapist. I'm a I'm a clinician. Um, many veterans are suspicious of medications for mental health. On one hand, they know that they need them, uh, but on the other hand, they think that meds might be too much, and they may have some misconceptions about medications. How do you help veterans who? How do you help veterans get comfortable with the idea of using medications to address some of these things well and how i usually con uh, conceptualize it as this is as this is a brain injury because when people you know because a lot of times with mental health people think it's more as like it's like a character weakness or you know maybe I'm weak in some way but in reality um the reason that I'm even doing medications in the first place is to kind of help um help people even conceptualize therapy or even do therapy because sometimes the symptoms are so severe that they can't even sit in therapy. Like they're afraid to even um, talk about any anything because they're so fearful that it will dysregulate their mood that's already there where they're just holding on. And in that case, and I think that's the fear for a lot of people. And that's really what, well, not even just, you know, veterans, but I think for a lot of people is I don't want to do medication because that somehow says something about me that I'm weak. 
but um, in reality, we're dealing more with like brain injuries, and this is helping us compensate so that they can, you know, function better. And you know, and also, it's not going to make everything perfect. It's still, you know, the therapy is also really important because. Um, but if if you're hypervigilant, if you you know your reaction to stress is, I mean, a lot of times people react, they don't realize, you know, until after the fact that they did it. And sometimes that is related to, you know, not being on medication and not, you know, an uh, actual brain injury. So it really does help and it um, with therapy in a lot of ways because um, at least you can conceptualize the therapy and actually utilize the therapy because if you're in fight or flight, it's going to be really difficult to use some of the therapy and, you know, uh, in just like do any therapy because it's like torture in a lot of ways i think a lot of people don't realize that the i mean if they think about it they don't realize the brain is another organ right mm-hmm. the the same as our heart or our liver or our stomach if i have an ulcer i take medication for that if yes. i have high blood pressure i take medication for that because an organ in my body isn't functioning mm-hmm. but somehow we don't apply that to the brain yes and um i some of the things that i hear from other people are you know what did they do without medication or what did they do before medication? And it's not that people did not have a mental illness. It's just they suffered. We had more people in asylums. We had more people, you know, that had suicide. I mean, there were a lot of things that happened. And um, and now, you know, the medications are better than they were even 30 years ago. Um, and our understanding of the brain um, and, and medication has improved a lot. We're getting there. We're not quite there, I think. Um, but it's important for people to, and that could be some of it is the stigma stigma of mental illness and then how people were treated with a mental illness in the past and what the treatments were available. And so um, a lot of people will avoid it, but if you don't, what typically happens, we call it a kindling effect. So if you don't treat the symptoms, the brain gets really good at doing the wrong thing. So progressively they can get worse and worse. And that's where I see people in crisis where it's like, where they're like, I don't, you know, either it's going to end up in a suicide or it's going to, you know, it's pretty bad. And so the hope is that when people start, you know, suffering and they notice that it's becoming more of a problem, we can catch it at that point so that it doesn't go down the road of, um, you know, if I, and a lot of people will ignore it and say like, you know, if I ignore it, it's not there, but in reality, it's still there and it's just progressively getting worse. So that's why I think medication, and it can be life-saving for a lot of people because, um, for some people, it's it's too much. I think it's interesting that idea of uh, medication where it's come even in the last 50 years. We're not that far removed from um, having asylums, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just the, the, the big push was in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. In many people's memories, um, there was the nut house, so yep. to speak. And so that was the way that there, there still is this stigma against mental health in the, the community in general. And, and then military and veterans, the idea is, well, they're just going to throw pills at me right Mm -hmm. and and they're just going to make me a zombie and there's all these misconceptions around mental health or around medication management that may be based on outdated information very true and i think that's a lot of it and it might have been how things were treated in the military as well so outside of the military because i have heard that more than a few times where people felt like they were getting getting a pill but they weren't getting therapy or they were getting you know these things and really i mean if you're not treating the underlying problem or, you know, that's why I think therapy and meds really complement each other because, you know, essentially we're helping your brain regulate, but if you don't address the cause or, you know, whether that's trauma or processing through trauma or um, addressing the issues that kind of have been contributing to 
what has been making you sick, we're only bandaging a bigger issue. And I think that's why they complement each other. And definitely there is, you know, still a stigma. And even in the military, there's still, you know, a stigma because, um, and sometimes the biggest hurdle people have to uh, get past is themselves because they'll avoid, it's kind of like avoid, nothing's wrong with me, everything's fine. And then the normalizing other people, you know, oh, I have nightmares, I, you know, do these things. Is it normal? No. But other people, it's like I see other people and sometimes it's, you know, I see where it's like depending on what people experience with, you know, other people in their unit, it's like it's not if they have PTSD, it's the severity of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it just because people don't get help for it doesn't mean that it's not there and it doesn't mean that there's not suffering. If everyone around me is acting the same way as me, Mm -hmm. I seem normal, right? So if we're all standing outside in the rain, well, everybody's wet, so there's nothing wrong. Exactly. And that's part of the issue. And then the longer you go in. And then the other problem is, you know, people coming out of the military and realizing that, you know, everything is different Um, as far as even civilian life. And that's a whole nother. That's a whole a whole other thing. But the other thing that I think is really interesting um, is sometimes when people are in chaos, when their brain's in chaos, it's easier for them to stay in the chaos. So that's why I see some people remain in the military. I I think because rather than address the, you know, I don't want to live anymore thoughts, it's like, well, you know, if I'm in that fight or flight, well, why don't I put myself in a situation where I fight or flight? And if I don't live, then it, it is what it is. And so, um, and that's a really, you know, sad place to be, but it distorts your reality of, you know, my option is, you know, continue on and I may, you know, end up, and sometimes people survive even that. And then they're like, well, now what do I do? Um, so it's a lot. Hey, and I think that idea of, of how things were in the military, you're absolutely right. Um, medications were designed to get you to the next stage. Mm-hmm. And then you take medications to the next stage, right? They were designed to, quote unquote, and almost literally keep you in the fight. Yeah. Um, and not <clears throat> necessarily be concerned with what's going to happen 25, 30 years later, right? It is about right now, let's accomplish this mission. Um, what the what the veteran is dealing with in the Department of Veterans Affairs started in the Department of Defense, started in their military. It is. And actually, not even just with mental health injuries, I often see other physical injuries. And then on the backside, they're like, oh, I have this torn thing and this torn thing. And I mean, some people that have retired, I have, you know, full lists of all sorts of medical conditions because they ignored those medical conditions. The same thing goes for the mind. If you ignore it for a long period of time, we're just doing more and more damage. And that's the hard thing. But it's kind of when you're kind of stuck in the middle of it, it seems like I think the right thing to do at the time, and that's what people do is, you know, it's, and it's sometimes easier for people to, and they identify as a soldier. And then also, you know, being around other people that are in the military, I think is helpful for them because they feel, and something that someone had said to me before was that they felt like um, they felt disconnected once they, they left the military because they were almost trauma bonded to the people that were in their unit. And it was like having therapy every day because they were talking about their traumas. But then once they were discharged from the military, they felt disconnected and that's where things escalated. Um, And also, which is interesting, um, when people get out of the military, I think they'll think, oh, you know, I'm going to relax or whatever. But if your brain's not engaged, things typically get a little bit worse. So the whole I'm not going to work thing doesn't always work as well for people because it only exacerbates, I think, the symptoms. Because if your brain's constantly heightened and then you're not doing anything, that's where it gets worse. 
No, it, that's absolutely right. I mean, even my own personal experience uh, in the late 90s, I jumped out of airplanes about 18 times in seven months, which was quite a bit. Um, it goes back to your analogy of running yeah. more often. Uh, ignored a lot of pain until I found out that I had multiple cracks in my legs. Did the same thing in Iraq where I injured my left foot. And, and ultimately, it meant that I injured myself on a jump in 2012. Had to jump out of airplanes twice more on the injury. And it's not like I wasn't, I didn't understand. I I knew what was happening, Uh but yet I still felt that drive until Uh I injured myself to the point where I couldn't mask it with medication anymore. And sometimes people don't process that, you know, the physical trauma and the emotional trauma until after because they're in, I'm just going to get, keep going. I'm just going to go until literally their body's like, I can't do this anymore. And that's where I think people get medically discharged or medically discharged for physical illness, or they get medically discharged for um, like PTSD or, you know, whatever, just because it is a lot of wear and tear. And depending on what people are doing in the capacity of the military, I'm sure some people do have a lot more wear wear and tear. And that's the difference is some people have completely different military careers and some people will experience a whole bunch of, you know, um, it seems like a whole lot of combat and some people will not, you know, maybe not see a whole lot. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's interesting because you see a spectrum of all sorts of you know, different military experiences. And then how the physical injury ties to psychological response. Again, for that example, uh, thankfully, I don't have uh, much of the nightmare problems, but mm-hmm. one of the recurrent nightmare nightmares mm-hmm. that I have is either loss or amputation of my left foot, which mm-hmm. is where all of my injuries have been, right? Mm-hmm. In, in that lower left leg, right? And so there's something in the back part of my brain that is afraid of my left foot falling off, and I have yeah. nightmares about about it but that's a psychological response based on a physical injury yes and it's a lot of stress and i feel like some of the nightmares that people are experiencing are they're processing through trauma or they're process whether or some type of stress so it could be a result of you know there's something and i'm fully aware that you know most of the time people don't disclose every you know trauma to me i'm only getting probably the pg version but there is like and the more you're processing the more you know stress you're putting on your brain and without you know getting treated sometimes i mean it, it gets to the point where it's like it can be life or death for a lot of people so and, and the other thing that you had mentioned before that I think is really helpful is that um, medications alone and therapy alone don't necessarily, the way I describe it is um, sometimes medication can help calm the waters. Mm-hmm. So I, as a therapist, can help you learn how to row. Yes. Right? That's you, exactly. It doesn't mean that you, like, medications go away, the water gets choppy again, now you know how to navigate. But me helping you learn how to row in choppy waters that are over your head, it's not helpful. The other thing, I was like, I'll use another analogy, but let's say you got a knee injury and you had to replace your knee. Is the knee going to be exactly the same that it was before? No. Um, And sometimes, you know, therapy and meds are really helping people function with that disability. Can it get exacerbated when it's cold? Absolutely. Same thing with our brain. So sometimes, you know, there is lasting effects, learning how to, you know, function and, you know, even just go on with life. It's not that there's not an injury there. It's not going to, it's much easier um, to cause damage than it is to heal the damage. And once it's healed, it may not be exactly the same. It doesn't mean that you can't function better, but I think, you know, the expectation, and I think that's another thing that people struggle with is, you know, I wasn't like this before and what's wrong with me and why am I having to deal this with all these emotions and physical injuries. And um, so, and I think that's a huge part of it is realizing, you know, 
these are and even with chronic pain i see the same thing where you know i used to not have a back injury and i used to be able to function but now i live with a back injury and that's um something that i'm having to cope with and i think that's difficult because mental illness can be a chronic condition and some people will deal with like lingering um like illnesses like even beyond even with medication the hope is that we get people to remission that's my hope for everyone but sometimes i think the damage can be pretty profound Um, and learning how to function and live with some of the trauma i think or even just with the mental illness is the goal for a lot of people and and i think that's that's very important right you know is to say is sometimes you can be on some medications for a period of time and come Mm -hmm. off and other times it's going to be like this for the rest of your life and Mm -hmm. that's okay because if you would develop diabetes then it would be insulin for the rest i mean it's Mm -hmm. the same thing as any other physical injury physical injury no i agree that's usually how i you know it's one of those things even with diabetes some people can manage it with diet and exercise and some people are completely insulin dependent and it's a chronic condition mental illness can be a chronic condition that you know once you do damage you can aggravate it so you know if you have a depressive episode and for one of the statistics is if you have a depressive episodes and and you go on an antidepressant and then after a year you stop if you have another episode you're 50 percent more likely to have another episode so once you've already injured your brain in some capacity you're more likely to have other episodes so really the self-care um, doing therapy doing medication all of that is really important to prevent worse symptoms same thing you know even if you're not consistent heart like pretty much anything you can think of like you know i have high blood pressure if well i don't literally have high blood pressure but if i had high blood pressure and i didn't take blood pressure medication could i get by for a little while probably does it mean that i could have a stroke yes you know if you don't take the medication if you don't take care of yourself you know the condition gets worse and it gets harder to treat and you might have other things happen Um, That could be, you know, and actually people always think that it's just, you know, the impact on the brain. You could also trigger chronic conditions like, you know, some people, there is a, you know, connection with even autoimmune disorders as well. Because if you put a lot of pressure and a lot of anxiety on your body, your body is impacted. Absolutely. You're listening to Inside the Military Mind, brought to you by the Family Care Center. My guest today is Joelle Bailey, a psychiatric nurse practitioner with the Family Care Center. So as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, you have medical training as opposed to my training as a therapist. Uh, As a medical provider, and you've talked about it a little bit, you recognize that things like depression, anxiety, are as much biological and neurological conditions, right? So these are dysfunctions of the brain, the same Mm -hmm. way that, that, you know, high blood pressure, heart disease is a dysfunction of the heart. Um, You're especially aware of the impact that trauma has on the brain and how those changes can impact someone's life after the military. Yes. Um, So a lot of things happen. A lot of times when people think of, you know, PTSD or military trauma, they think of the veteran only, but really it's a family unit. So if you think about it, you know, if someone's suffering from mental illness, they might be more agitated. They might be shorter with their kids, you know, and that trickles down. So that family dynamic, it causes, you know, it can cause more stress in children. It can cause stress with the, you know, the spouses. I know there's, you know, between divorce or other things. I mean, there's a lot of things I think that go on. And some of it is the impact on the family unit. And I think you talked a little bit before. Well, I think we talked a little bit how people, P- PCS, and then, you know, they're kind of pulled from 
um, their support system. And then, you know, imagine, you know, someone's deployed, they've been through, you know, a tremendous amount of stress, then you have someone that's watching, you know, they have all three children for a, a prolonged period of time. Then, you know, the veteran come back in processing, processing through that trauma. And then also, you know, the family getting impacted because, you know, she's stressed out and then he comes back stressed and the kids are stressed because they didn't have a parent there for a long period of time. And they were probably, depending on the age of the child, they might have been stressed out thinking, you know, is he going to come back? Or, you know, because kids, you can only hide so much for them. They worry about their parents, too. Um, And it's something um, to at least, you know, talk about it, because I think when people think of mental illness or when they think of and this could happen in a lot of different capacities, but it doesn't just impact the person. It impacts the person and everyone around them. So, And, and stress isn't this magic cloud that's there. I mean, there's chemical things that happen in our brain when we experience high levels of stress, right? Mm-hmm. You know, increasing cortisol, increasing adrenaline and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and dumping that kind of thing on a nine-year-old's brain or a 19-year-old or a 29-year-old. But, but those kind of neurological reactions have a physical changing effect on the brain. Yes. And so it can cause generational trauma. And some of that has to do with the vulnerability of the brain at that age, experiencing high stress. You know, let's say you didn't, I think some kids, they just don't understand like, you know, maybe mom or dad, you know, they're more short with me. I don't know if they care about me. I don't know if they love me. And they don't understand the complexities of you know, someone coming back with PTSD. And so the result is they internalize that as, you know, that's something, you know, wrong with me. And the more that a child is exposed to um, adverse childhood events, the more likely they are to have, you know, other things go on in their life. And it does make your brain more vulnerable. And then we'll also see something else that I think um, that I've also, you know, read about where it would be generational. So someone fighting in World War II and then, you know, the son goes in and says, you know, I also want to, you know, fight in Vietnam. And then they they come back, you know, he his brain was already vulnerable because he experienced the trauma as a child with his interaction with his father. Um, and then he went to war because, and his brain was already vulnerable to begin with. And then that caused trauma and then his interactions with his own children, you know, and that's the hard part is this is, sometimes generational like people are causing you know trauma like if you don't address your own traumas and if you don't address um you know by either you know getting medication to treat mental illness and or you know therapy you can essentially be causing trauma on someone else and that could be your child that could be you know your spouse that could be a whole bunch of people but when when service members of veterans are in that cloud of chaos they're not thinking about that no. right? i have uh, in through my clinical training we had to do and we call it in in the clinical space a geneogram right of looking at our generations and some of the um uh, the patterns there on my mother's side i don't think i have i have she's one of 15 brothers and sisters i don't have uh, any uncles i have one uncle who was married today i have disrupted like all of them had been divorced if not mm-hmm. once if not twice on my father's side subs all all of the males grandfather father three brothers were all engaged in substance use and stuff like that until i took that step back and realized that this is the pattern of disrupted relationships on one side and substance use on the other and how that might have been an impact on how i approached relationships or substances when i was young makes a lot of sense and sometimes when I ask people and I do like a I'll ask you know do you have any family history of mental illness and they'll say no and then I'll say 
well, what about alcoholism? And usually it's yes, because the thing is, alcohol is, I feel like a lot of people coped with alcohol because alcohol is easily, um, it was easily acceptable. I mean, it's easily to be attained. It's um, socially acceptable is and the word I was looking for. And it works in the for. short term, unfortunately. Yes. That's the problem. Yes, it works in the GABA system. So, you know, it's it's reducing stress, but it also is a depressant. So, you know, and, you know, I've also seen where people... They try to medicate themselves so much until they went into liver failure because that's how bad the trauma was and that's how much they were suffering. And when people do, you know, do things like alcoholism or even substance abuse, I don't think, oh, you know, this person just is doing it because they enjoy it. They're doing it to cover up mood symptoms. They're, I mean, no one drinks until they go into liver failure because it's the fun thing to do. They do it because the suffering they're experiencing is so debilitating that this is the better option. Um, or, or just to sleep. I've heard yeah, veterans say sleep. that, that I, I have to drink six to eight beers a night just to go to sleep, just to be able to do that. That, again, is that analogy. Is one beer bad? Yeah. Is running once a week bad? But running a marathon or yes. drinking an eight-pack or a 12-pack every night oh, yeah. is, is just as damaging. And exacerbating symptoms that they already have, so it's not sustainable. So if you – I mean, that's usually how it starts, and then – you know, like, and some people will say, like, I was a functional alcoholic in the military, and um, until they weren't, um, until it's kind of the same thing. You you drink until you can't drink anymore. Um, but but that's the hard people, the, the hard thing. And people try to cope the best that they can and avoid medication at all cost. And you know, some of it could be, um, well, I don't want to be kicked out of the military. I don't want to see behavioral health services because you know I'm so far, or you know whatever the reason there's, you know, people, or maybe they're just discouraged by other people in their unit or whatever the reason, but, but no, it definitely can cause other problems if you don't treat it. And, and it goes even to the, the neurological impacts of prolonged substance use. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but even you mentioned earlier about um, mental health conditions are physical injuries to the brain. Like mm -hmm. um, it, neurology has advanced to the point where we know that exposure to trauma, continued cortisol, adrenaline, it changes the physical structures of the brain, the amygdala, you yep. know, the hippocampus, like the physical parts of your brain start to get shriveled or cracked or, or whatever analogy you want to talk about it. But these are physical injuries that it's not just able to talk about psychologically. Yes. And I think we're getting better at addressing that. And actually, I was like, at Family Care Center, we just got an EEG machine. So we've been doing EEG-led TMS. So that's really fascinating. But um, but we're actually looking at electrical signaling and the changes in electrical signaling in the brain. And I think that might be where things are going in the future is we may be able to identify, you know, um, like treatment even more targeted based off, you know, the physical or the physical injury of the brain. And the crazy thing about all this is that they didn't think like this is all even in the last 50 years, like they didn't think, oh, you know, this could be an injury. Why don't we scan the brain when Emory and then after they did, you know, studies where people experience trauma, they're like, wait a second, you know, there is damage to the brain. Um, and it was almost like the brain was an afterthought of, and people still have this misconception that, oh, you know, this is a character weakness. This person is just flawed. You know, they should, you know, just, you know, pick themselves up and continue on with life. But the more they do that, the sicker they get. And so that's why I think it's really important to address it so that it doesn't progress into even worse symptoms. But, and if they did need help, I mean, it's okay to say, you know, 
I choose life and I'm going to, and I think that's what a lot of people end up doing is, I was like, and that's another issue is getting help when you're in crisis. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people wait until the la- until it's a complete mental health crisis and they tell them, okay, well, we can see you in a month or we can see you in two months or however long period of time when you're in crisis, it's like a medical emergency. And so, you know, by the time they, you know, your choices are a psych hospital, which you're already afraid anyway, or, you know, waiting however Continuing long. to suffer, yeah. And that's why... It's so it's better to, you know, get help sooner rather than later. But we I mean, there is a lot of a lot of flaws even in, you know, people getting treatment. And I think that's you and I as mental health providers, we're almost like emergency room doctors, right? Yeah. When when they walk into our office, they're already bleeding from a thousand cuts. Yeah. And, and and I had a mentor of mine said, um, especially in his experience, veterans either come to treatment because of their lawyer, their lover, or their liver, right? Mm-hmm. So either criminal or justice involvement, relationship challenges, or a physical health issue is the reason why they're finally deciding to stop doing whatever mm-hmm. they're doing. Um, and, and I think that's a... It, but we don't wait till our teeth fall out to go to the dentist. Yeah. Hopefully. Pretty much everything else you're like, well, you know, my back, you know, maybe they need to do a scan. But no, the brain is one of those things where we're like, well, I guess I'll just, you know, see how it goes. But it usually doesn't go very well. Um, and a lot of people do end up suffering a lot. Absolutely. So you and I, and we've talked about this a little bit, we work in an integrated behavioral health system, providers from different behavioral health disciplines working together, many times with the very same client or the client family. Uh, Why do you think this is helpful uh, for the military population specifically? It's helpful because um, I like more of, you know, an approach where there's multiple people involved because um, it's all in one place first of all, which is nice. So they don't have to go, you know, you know, a therapy office here. And then I'll, you know, if I want to do TMS, you know, that's a different thing. If I need to do outside referrals, it's nice having it all in one office. So, you know, if I, if there was a client and, you know, I always let clients know, Hey, you know, can I talk with your therapist about this? Cause I want to be very respectful, but I think it's good when it's more of a integrated approach because then, you know, the therapist is going to spend a lot more time with them and maybe they have more insight than I do about kind of what's going on. And when more people are involved in treatment, it's more comprehensive and I have seen better outcomes. I've seen people that have not been as well as they have been in years, just because they're not, you know, they're not, I'll encourage them to get therapy. So it's easier, you know, we'll do therapy here and it's all in all in one place. So they feel more comfortable. Um, and some of it is like the constant, you know, having someone to talk to. But then also the other thing that I really like at Family Care Center is they actually give us enough time to spend with patients. So, you know, a lot of other practices I've seen, they'll do 15-minute follow-ups. And what am I going to get in 15 minutes sometimes from some people that are just trying to determine if they want to trust me or not? I might not be getting to the root of the problem in 15 minutes. So it's nice that they give me a longer period of time. And if I wanted to, 45 minutes or even an hour, if I need to, to spend time with patients and figure out what's going on and how I can help them. And the more accurate the diagnosis and we figure out what's going on, the better the outcome because we're targeting the right symptoms. We're, you know, doing the right medication and, you know, and then once you know, hope, the hope, the goal is remission. And I've actually seen that. And, and that's like one of the most amazing things. And by remission, I think, you know, um, not that you won't be sad or not that you won't be happy, but um, 
functioning better. It's not necessarily debilitating the way that it was before. So that's, you know, the goal. And I like that it's easier to achieve in this environment. You mentioned trust earlier, and especially with mental health. Like, You need to trust your orthopedic doctor who's not going to mess up your knee, but especially when people are talking about trauma or emotions or pain, trust is significant. And I think that's one of the beneficial things is I can say, hey, I know Joelle. Yeah. Right? You trust me as your therapist. I trust Joelle. I can offload some of that trust. And you can do the same thing and say, hey, I'm seeing you for medications, but I also know Eli. You'll get along really well with Eli. And mm-hmm. so there's a little bit of that linkage of trust yep. um, because of the familiarity that you have with the other providers. And also, you know, when people do see me, I can determine, okay, this might be a good fit or this might be, you know, not such a good fit based off personalities also. That does happen sometimes where, mm-hmm. you know, the patient is reluctant because sometimes people are reluctant to go to therapy. And I was like, why? Because they don't want to talk about what's causing them, the, you know. But over time, when they're willing to, you know, open up, if I know that, you know, this person might be able to tackle or, you know, this person has trauma therapy, you know, like they do trauma therapy, they would be more experienced in this area, or maybe they do DBT, or maybe they do, you know, whatever. It's much easier to do that and then say, okay, well, this person would probably be a better fit. Because I think that's the hard part is people get discouraged when they see people because it's making them vulnerable anyway. Said, you know, every time you have to talk about trauma to someone, um, I think that's what why people avoid treatment as well is because either there's a lot of like turnover or, you know, they don't want to talk about their trauma with everyone. Or let's say you disclose something and it wasn't a good fit therapist wise, then you get discouraged and you're like, I don't know if I want to go back to a therapist because I was vulnerable enough to talk to someone and I didn't feel good talking to them. I think that's another really great point that in, in not just Family Care Center, but organizations in which there can be a stability of therapists. Uh, yes. One of our clinical directors tells this story where she first met with a, a veteran client um, and, and he kept looking at his watch after like 20 minutes. And he's like, are we done yet? And she was like, no, we have a full hour. And so he was surprised there. And he was like, so when are you leaving? How, how much time do we have together? And she was like, I usually leave at like five o'clock today. I don't know. He meant no. Are we going to see each other for two or three times and then you're going to leave and I'm going to see somebody else and then I'm going to see because that's what that what he was used to. Uh And he was very it was very strange that she's like, I've been here for five years. I'm not going anywhere. Uh And that's the hard part, because sometimes even with me, with my patients that I've been seeing for, you know, longer, they might not tell me something until two years later. Uh And because I'm like you didn't tell me that or and then I'll be like is this why you haven't been going to therapy and then they'll be like yeah because they talked about it and I didn't want to talk about it and now I'm ready to talk about it but if you keep exchanging a whole bunch of people it I mean it takes a lot for and I think it's that you know I don't want to disclose all my trauma every single time it's I think it can be pretty stressful no, I agree. I mean, I really think, and, and touching on that idea of there's so many different things that we can do. It is medication, it is uh, therapy, but it is also TMS and, and things yeah. like that. So uh, being able to have everything under one roof, I, I think can really, you know, this idea of a one-stop psychological shop. I like that a lot. And actually, people don't realize all the things that we even have in our office. They don't have it everywhere. Like a TMS 
they don't offer that everywhere, which TMS, if you don't, I was like, if you're not familiar, it stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's, I was like an FDA approved treatment for, um, for depression. And um, so we have that, we have the EEG, which helps us, you know, we can even do some off labels, which is kind of cool. Um, we offer IV ketamine in the office, which is kind of cool, um, which not everyone does. The groups that they offer, I like that they have DBT even for adolescents, which is helpful. Um, so not every practice is big enough to have that. And it's nice having an integrative approach. So if someone's like, oh, you know, if I think someone would benefit from something, I'll say, you know, this is what we have to offer. And um, and I think that's helped a lot because they feel comfortable coming there. And then, you know, if that's something that they, they're interested in, um, it's easy to do a referral. And and even the, the whole family thing, right? Yeah. You have, we have people, and, and I have a client that, you know, it's like this particular night is their family night out to the family yeah. care center is because the spouse goes and the veteran goes and their, their child goes, right? And, and it's just, and, and, and this is sort of that thing is that if if there are sort of separate places, it's just sort of hit and miss. Mm-hmm. And it is nice, you know, maybe, you know, the kids have, they do play, the kids the kid, the kiddos usually like therapy because it's like play therapy. But I mean, for a lot of the, the younger younger kids, but it's true. I think, you know, families feel comfortable. The kids are able to process through things maybe that made them stressed out or, you know, and then also um, the relationships are more therapeutic. They're communicating better. There's less explosions in the house. Um, and that improves quality of life. That helps people with their marriages. Um, and I like that it's like, well, there's someone, I always joke, there's someone for everyone. So if, you know, if one person is quite not quite the fit, then, and I even tell that to other veterans, you know, if there's someone that if you prefer a male, if you prefer whatever, it doesn't hurt my feelings. I just want to make sure that you're getting what you need. Um, and if it's not with me, that's okay. Um, and I think even with the therapist, it's like, you know, if there's something, someone that you think, or maybe you don't feel comfortable around, you know, this or that, or you want someone with military experience specifically, there's someone for everyone over there. Absolutely. Um, it, we both, I think, talk a long time because of what we're passionate about. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Joelle. For this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, I'd like to share a bit about the Independent Center, a nonprofit that specializes in supporting and promoting civil rights for people with disabilities. Working with individuals, their families, and the community, the Independent Center creates independence so that all may thrive. The Independent Center provides information, resources, and support to help people with disabilities live, learn, work, play, and participate in civil life as equals. In addition to their home office located in Colorado Springs, Colorado, many of their services are offered throughout Colorado. The Independent Center's services and programs are available to anyone in their service area who self-identifies as having a disability. This includes those with a cognitive, physical, or mental health disability, who have blindness or low vision, or who are deaf, hard of hearing, and deafblind. As Southern Colorado's Disability Resource Center, the Independent Center is composed of people with disabilities serving the disability community with the mission to create independence. Founded in 1987, the Independent Center also has one of the most established home health agencies serving clients, families, and caregivers. The Independent Center serves people with disabilities through four distinct programs, including home health, independent living, peer support and individual advocacy, and the Veteran in Charge program. With the Home Health Department, family and friend caregivers can be paid for caregiving in Colorado under in-home support services, 
a service allowed in certain Medicaid home and community-based services long-term Medicaid waivers. Spouses, adult children, parents, friends, and neighbors who provide care for a loved one may be employed by the Independent Center and receive compensation. If you're already caring for a service member or friend or considering doing so, you may be qualified to be paid for that care by becoming an employee of the Independent Center. Contact the Independent Center today to find out how to qualify for their Family Friend Caregiver Program at 719-476-3107 or online at theindependentcenter.org. The Home Health Department can also assist in getting a home health modification if you qualify under Medicaid. Medicaid currently offers up to $14,000 in home modification support for those enrolled with a qualifying Medicaid waiver. These home modifications will assist in making an individual's home safe and more accessible. Independent Center will help with a physical therapist or occupational therapist that will complete a thorough evaluation. Sometimes consumers do not qualify for Medicaid assistance or the assistance falls short of the financial help that's required to fully modify the home for needed accessibility. For these consumers, the Independent Center can help find alternative resources such as grants for obtaining the funds for this shortfall. They will assist you with the applications and request for additional funding for the required modification. Each application is evaluated on several criteria, including but not limited to urgency of need, financial support, availability of other funding sources, safety and or quality of life improvement expected, complexity and cost of the project and, and expected independence as a result of the project. The Independent Center's Center for Independent Living serves people with disabilities with specific departments for deaf and hard of hearing and those with low vision or blindness. Services that include access to assistive technology and skills classes are free for all who self-identify as having a disability and live in El Paso, Cheyenne, Kit Carson, Lincoln, Park, and Teller Counties. Along with the Independent Center's Colorado Springs Center, they have an extension office at the Aspen Mine Center in Cripple Creek and Callahan Outreach Center in Callahan. Peer support and individual advocacy at the Independent Center exists as a catalyst for gaining empowerment and forming a social network. The Independent Center offers peer support groups, facilitated workshops, advocacy coaching, and individual mentoring, all of which are intended to help you achieve your goals. Support groups at the Independent Center are designed to be all-inclusive so that no matter what your disability, you should be able to find a group that will fit you well. Examples of some of the peer support groups at the Independent Center cross-disabilities, family caregiver encouragement, traumatic brain injury, living well with a disability, men's group, and women's group. Workshops are often facilitated with topics that consumers have suggested. The Independent Center's new formal mentoring program is called Lift Up and allows you the opportunity to connect with another person with a similar disability in order to share life experience and information. Consumers who desire to mentor others will go through an application process that includes an interview, meetings with the Independent Center staff, a background check, and educational training. Once approved, mentors will be paired with those that they will mentor. For more information about the mentor program, contact the Peer Mentor Coordinator at 719-471-8181. The Veterans in Charge program is a veteran-directed care program funded by the Department of Veterans Affairs. Veterans in Charge serves eligible veterans of any age who want to remain living in their home and community for as long as possible with appropriate services and support. Through the Veteran in Charge program, veterans will work with one of the Independent Center's veteran coaches to plan and manage the VA-funded support and services, such as assistive devices, environmental support, meal delivery, transportation, emergency response system, in-home personal care, homemaker services, caregiver support, 
home modifications, and adult daycare. Veteran-directed means that the veteran has control over what services, support, and goods they need, who provides those services and support, when, where, and how the services and supports are provided, and how much is paid for the fee. To speak with the Veteran in Charge program, call 719-476-3178. If you've not yet visited the Independence Center, please give them a call at 719-471-8181 or online at theindependentcenter.org and set up a meeting to register and explore all of the options that the Independence Center has to offer. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions you have or know what you'd like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email at militarymind at FCCsprings.com, and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on the show is for informational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I am not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discussed on this episode brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber inviting you to learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family, caring for your family. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services, our family, caring for your family, fcsprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF and listen to the companion podcast on Podbean. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.